You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Thompson, and you're listening to Arn with the voice of the Four Horsemen, the founder of the Four Horsemen, the Hall of Famer himself, the Enforcer, Double A, Arn Anderson. Arn, how are you, man? I am glorious. It is the holiday season. I love holidays, don't you? I do. You know, we just passed the Fat Boy Christmas, which was Thanksgiving, and now we're marching towards Jesus' birthday. What a great time to be an American, man. I am uh, I'm loving the holiday season here in America. And the pro wrestling we've had lately, that hadn't been half bad either. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. It's been a good, you know, the last six months has really been good. Really has. Yeah, it's a great time to be a fan, especially if you are tuned into the podcast here. You know, we've heard from you about Starcade 85. We've heard from you about Survivor Series 88. Uh, just a, a lot of fun old memories, but every other week, what we're doing here on the Arn Show is uh, we're letting you fans get in the driver's seat. I have the coolest job in the world. I get to ask Arn Anderson questions, and now it's your turn. Uh, so we took to Twitter, and if you haven't already, follow us there at the Arn Show. And if you've got a question for Arn, just fire away and use that hashtag Ask Arn Anything. Arn, we've got a bunch of questions this week. We'll try to get to as many as we can. Are you ready? Let's rock and roll. All right, let's get to Twitter here. Again, if you want to participate in these types of shows, it's easy. Just use hashtag AskArnAnything. And uh, what do you know? We might ask your question right here on the show. Let's get to Joshua Weekly's question. He says, uh, do you watch any wrestling promotion uh, religiously these days, whether it's Impact, MLW, Ring of Honor, New Japan, NWA? Let's sort of break them all down here. Uh, Impact, have you watched any impact lately or when's the last time you saw an impact show? Yeah, I, uh, I watched a little bit of it. Um, sure did. And I'm across the board. I'm just watching in pieces. I'm taping a lot of the stuff that I'm getting used to where it is on a what, what network and all that. And I'm kind of watching in increments. I'm, I'm trying to deprogram, clean the palette yep. as it were. Uh, and just, uh, start over again and, and watch little pieces of the show. I watched impact and I saw Tessa Blanchard against, uh, cage. Yeah. Brian cage. Yeah. We've discussed how I felt about that. Haven't we? We did. Yes, sir. That won't change. Uh, after seeing it, it just, uh, don't know. I don't know how plausible it, it is. And I don't know how that benefits all the talent involved. And to be clear, you're a big fan of Tessa Blanchard's work. You're just not necessarily sold on intergender wrestling. Yeah, exactly. Especially on a level playing field and one that's not level. And that cage looks about as good as anybody in the business. He is a monster. Um, I, I think Tessa's tremendous. And uh, it's just, you know, in the long run, I don't know what it does for him, and I don't know what it does for the rest of the guys in the men's division. But it's not my call. It's not my company. Only the fans can decide if they like that or not. But I'm the, the jury's still out for me. Let me ask you, since you brought up Brian Cage, what do you think Vince thinks about a performer like Brian Cage? To me, it feels like he would, like that's his guy. Like the prototype of what Vince wants as a, in a wrestler, or at least once upon a time is a guy who, who has a Brian cage style. Look, am I, am I close? Am I far off? Right on it. I don't know why he's not working there. Has he ever been through the system? Did it, was he ever in, in uh, NXT or anything like that in the past? The first time he was on my radar was when he was doing uh, Lucha underground 
And I think there for a brief time, he was, um, a part of Florida championship wrestling, but that would have been gosh, maybe like a decade ago. So I guess the answer is yes, but a long time ago. Uh, but he's had a couple of runs through uh, TNA or impact and, uh, Lucha underground or AAA, but it's been a long time, uh, since he had, uh, something to do with, uh, with the WWE's developmental system. Well, he definitely looks the part. He looks at, at, and his work has steadily gotten better. He does it work like a muscle head. He's mobile. He's athletic, you know, good looking guy, good physique, good athlete. I don't know. He's prototype for, for Vince. What about MLW or ring of honor? Have you caught much of their stuff? Not really. Um, not by design. Just haven't got around to it yet. Uh, I've watched the New Japan stuff just because I just got access here a while back. Um, the, uh, that stuff is, uh, you know, it's good and solid and creative in a lot of ways. And there's a lot of stuff that gets thrown away on that show, too, that I'm not a big fan of that strong style. So that's a new one on me. But, hey, I like the fact that every company brings you something different. It's up to you to choose, pick and choose what you like and you don't like. Let's talk about that for a minute. I want to go down the rabbit hole on New Japan for a minute because if I'm honest, that's the promotion I thought you would have seen the least of. Uh, but you made the comment about Strong Style. You know, I I have an idea the direction you're headed here. You wish that, you know, maybe their big impact moves meant a little more and they were finishes and, you know, they spent a little more time selling or am I way off base with what I think you might think about a match like that? No, 100%. You know, here's my, my opinion on selling, and it's just, it's very simple. If we're sitting here talking, and all of a sudden, just out of nowhere, I thump you in the nose, I'm going to get a reaction off of that. Yeah. Okay? Um, everything that we do in our industry, when we're involved in a match, and we're having a contest, there should be some type of reaction to everything we do. Lesser, somewhere in the middle, and then the big stuff, you get a bigger reaction, obviously. And if you take that out of it and guys are walloping each other or whatever they're doing or if there's a big snap suplex and the guy comes to his feet that gave the suplex and the guy's already standing there looking at him when he gets up and turns around, why do it? It's pretty simple. Every There's cause and effect to everything that happened in a wrestling match. And I think that's a lost art. Guys are throwing away the selling, which is what gets baby faces over and heat on heels. It's a pretty simple formula. Uh, and done in a cheap way by the heels, hopefully. That's what a fight is all about. You know, I don't think you've seen very many real fights or boxing matches where guys hit each other or, and there's just no effect. So that's my opinion. It may be outdated, but that's what we do. You sell for me, I sell for you. Now we got a contest going. No, I don't think that you're far off. That's uh, pretty much the consensus with, with folks from your generation. Um, let's talk about Ring of Honor for a minute. I know you said you haven't seen a bunch of it, but there is a tag team there that I've always thought, man, their style probably would be something Arn Anderson would enjoy. Do you know anything about the Briscoes? In Ring of Honor. Have you seen any said, of their stuff? Yeah, I have. Uh, two rugged guys. And, uh, you know, you would think they would just be straight brawlers, but they're a lot more talented than that. They do, you know, a lot of stuff. Pretty versatile, pretty creative. I mean, when you look at them, you think that's going to be a punch and kick team, but they're anything but that. And I agree with you. They do have a lot of talent. Uh, one of the last ones I want to ask about, we've, we've mentioned it a few times here, but it's been in the news in more recent weeks. Have you had a chance to catch any of the studio wrestling that the NWA is presenting yet on YouTube? I'm still lagging just because I'm lazy and I can't just cut on TV and it be on. I got to go online and all that stuff. I have it, but I have been reading re the reviews and, and the, the clips that are on the internet so far. Um, I think they're doing something that lasted and was cool and was identifi identifiable, excuse me, uh, with fans, you know, 40s and, and above. 
that studio television, it worked for a lot of years, you know, and having a match in front of a couple of hundred people and rolling out to that interview podium was a pretty cool situation. And it, and it felt live and it was live and it was awesome. And, uh, so they're yet again, they're a totally different product and, uh, kudos to all those guys for pulling it off. I, I think they're doing pretty well so far. They've got a big pay-per-view coming up next weekend. So if you're listening to this and you're a fan of the old school and you enjoyed studio wrestling, uh, and, and a lot of the early style of wrestling that you probably saw from Arn Anderson, you'll probably dig the pay-per-view it's on fight fight.tv. Let's, uh, let's keep it moving here. Mike Whitaker wants to know, uh, we know Tony Schiavone is a slap dick. Uh, and would say no, but if the WWE, WWE asked you to go in as a hall of famer, as a singles wrestler, would you? Nope. I have my hall of fame ring with the group I was known the best with. It was a tremendous honor. Um, one I'll never forget. And once again, a lot of times the fans are the stars and they were the star that night as far as i was concerned i didn't expect to stand an ovation and uh i never get tore up uh on promos or things that i see on our show or different shows that that was pretty close to uh being tore up and uh, i'll be forever grateful uh, a lot of people ask me don't you feel like you got shortchanged by not going in the hall on your own I don't feel shortchanged. Uh, I was very honored to be standing on the stage with all those guys, and I was very honored to have Dusty Rhodes put us in there. It was a special evening and one I'll never forget. I mean, when you really think about it, that, you know, Dusty Rhodes put the horsemen in as a group, I don't know how it can get much better than that. Probably can't. Yeah, it, I, I agree with you. I didn't really get your rationale at first, but now I do. Mayhem writes in. When did you realize that you agenting and putting together matches with John Cena just clicked so well? Well, it wasn't at first, which I've discussed before. It, it was a, um, it was a period there of getting to know John and getting to know where his head was at and figuring out that he wanted to be creative. He wanted to try new things. He just didn't have a lot of things in his tool belt when he first started, like all of us. You know, you start adding tools to your tool belt as you get each year that passes in the ring, you know, and being in the ring. And it's just repetition. You learn what works. You learn what doesn't work. Uh, you learn different ways to, to tell a story in a match. And uh, the fact that John was receptive and would listen to me and let me throw out a couple of different ideas to the one that that he has, even though I would say, if that's what you want to do, Knowing it wasn't going to work, I said, go do it anyway. You've got to learn through making mistakes. It's like anything else. You learn a lot more by making a mistake than you do by being successful. And uh, we had a long uh, tenure together, and uh, his career speaks for itself. Uh, in some way, I had some small part in that, I think, and uh, that's it. Was there anybody that you didn't click with? that you know if you for whatever reason not to say that they're a bad performer or that you didn't value their contributions or whatever just the personalities weren't a good fit uh no one that it got to be a point of of just totally disagreeing with their point of view and them disagreeing with mine i mean there were always guys that had a different feel for what was going on that day and levels of experience sometime would be the reason. Uh, no one that I want to name, um, even though there are a few, there's just no reason to to call those guys out. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there's always going to be guys that you disagree with their philosophy. Talk to us about Triple H for a minute. Well, you and I have never really spent any time talking about him. Did you ever agent any of his matches? How was he putting together matches and finishes and whatnot? Yeah, you know, um, one of the ones I really enjoyed, I think we covered, was uh, the 
uh, Shawn Michaels, Triple H, and Chris Benoit, Triple Threat. Yep. And you, ha- you had the number right away. Was it 21? WrestleMania 20, Madison Square Garden. There you go. That's one I enjoyed. And, and, you know, we share a lot of philosophy as far as putting a match together. You know, similar styles. And, you know, he doesn't do a lot of dives. He doesn't do a lot of stuff off the top. Nor should he. Um, different uh, psychology that's pretty close to my own. And uh, never had a crossword with him. Pretty much enjoyed every time that we worked together. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it was a good experience. Uh, Mike Eldridge writes in, did you ever think you were going to have a United States title run? That is an interesting question. I mean, you're really synonymous with the television title. You've held every variation of the tag title. Why never the U S it does seem a little weird. Yeah, it, it probably is. I don't, I don't know. I don't know if the TV title was such a good fit. Uh, they kept going back to the same hold. You know, and and it just worked better than the U.S. title. I, that's a good question. The one that I don't have an answer to. Uh, I would have been honored to have been the U.S. champion. It just never seemed to work out that way. When you were growing up, was there a title belt just from the look of it that you really liked and thought, "Man, that's a cool belt." I'm saying, when you were a kid, as a fan, was there one particular belt that you uh, really gravitated towards? No, it's, you know, it's weird. It wasn't, I never wanted to be the world champion when I was a kid. I never wanted to have a particular look or, you know, I wished I looked like that or whatever the deal was until one time I went to, um, a show in Rome, which was a live show on a Thursday night. And for the first time I saw Rocky Johnson walk in the back door and walk across that gym. My God, I'd never seen a body like that. And when, I mean, when he was at his best, he looked like a competitive bodybuilder. And if that was the guy and that was the moment, I guess I was probably, oh, I don't know, 15 or 14, 15. Yeah, probably maybe 13 or 14 because I started working out when I was, Right shortly thereafter, that was the guy that inspired me to start lifting weights. And, uh, man, he just, he looked incredible. And that's the one thing besides Slater and Orton as a team, that were the two things that for whatever reason grabbed me and said, and just shook me and said, that's what you're supposed to be doing. Of all the people you could have listed right there, I didn't expect that name. I love hearing your perspective. Um, the man of the nineties writes in, what was Arn's initial reaction when he found out they were going to market four horseman vitamins in the NWA? Well, initially when I heard it, I thought, well, it's, I don't know. That's a little honky, but I sure, you know, if I'm going to get paid on that deal, <laughs> yeah. Do I need to go ahead and accent your laughing by you already you smell part two coming? Not a dime. Well, in fairness, uh, how many of those fucking things could they have possibly sold? I would think maybe three to five bottles worldwide. <laughs> it's really remarkable when you think about it. I mean, I understand the Hulk Hogan was on TV every day saying, say your prayers and eat your vitamins. And at the time, Flintstone vitamins were jumping off. But the idea that there were horseman vitamins is just amazing. Uh, well, it's for it's for lack of a of a marketing team, you know, for all the great things. And I want to I want to thank the Crockett's and JCP, you know, for those three years did more for my career and taught me more and and got me started in life and as a businessman and as a wrestler and as a father and as a husband and. All those things, I didn't have anything. I had a TV set, my clothes, and a Toyota Corolla when I went to Jim Crockett Promotions and started. And I acquired everything that I had, you know. And uh, I'm very thankful for that. But can you just imagine, I've said this before, if they would have had the marketing machine when we were red hot and had all those personalities and stars, 
that Vince McMahon had. Can you imagine how wealthy the guys would have gotten? No, it's crazy to think about this. And by the way, I recommend everybody who listens to this show. If you have Netflix, go watch the new, uh, series or the new, uh, the new season, uh, the toys that made us, there is a, a wrestling action figure discussion and they break down the financials of LJN and Hasbro and Galoob who made the WCW figures, a man, it is unbelievable. The amount of cash that these things are generating. And so it just goes to show you that, yes, you guys were, were definitely popular enough and big enough stars, you know, it was just a missed opportunity, but it was based on, you know, if we're honest, the Crockett's were promoters, you know, from a bygone era of sorts, it was all about selling tickets and these new you know, revenue opportunities through licensing and whatnot. They weren't even big business for Vince back then. They became bigger business, but you know, the advance that, that Vince got from LJN or, or originally, or, or I believe the number was uh $10,000 is what was discussed that he had. A, no, it was Rimco. He had a $10,000 commitment from Rimco, which is, you know, not a lot of money. I mean, you've told us on this show, the iron Sheik was getting like 80 grand a quarter. So it's going to be a much bigger thing than, than anyone imagined, even Vince. But obviously once he saw what that looked like, he thought, shit, give me some more of that. And then there were Hulk Hogan lunchboxes and beach towels and bandanas and posters and everything in between. Correct. Uh, let's keep it moving here. Let's talk about, um, and I don't know that we've, that we've touched on this, but this is going to feel like a setup. Uh, if Arn were an active talent today, what promotion would he want to wrestle for? Very quickly, AEW. No, no thought given to it. I, I like, I like their attitude. I like the backstage feeling. I like their ownership and the way he treats the talent, and the way he feels about the fans. It's just fan friendly, the way it's supposed to be. What, you know, he, they ask the questions, what do you think the, you know, the fans want to see, you know, and, uh, that's what they're wanting to give you. It's not going to be, we're going to put this out no matter what, here's the show, take it or leave it. And, you know, it's been one of those things that, uh, it's been a long time since I really had a good time backstage in a relaxed scenario and being able to enjoy everything about the business and i'm such a big fan of the industry it's the greatest way to make a living on god's earth i don't care what it is you know it's just it's just wonderful it's not like even having a job and uh it's that way again and and tony khan has made that possible you know i've uh had the opportunity to be backstage for both a wwe show and an aew show and I can attest that they're different feels and vibes for lack of a better word. Can you speak on that? You know, you're obviously very familiar, you know, with both you've been backstage at a couple of AEW shows and obviously for a long time with WWE, but how would you describe, you know, the comparison or, or can you contrast them for us? Well, I mean, everything is, you know, is micromanaged with WWE. Everything is overproduced. Uh, everybody's a nervous wreck about making a mistake. You know, you got guys walking around with, uh, a full sheet of paper or more than one for a 10 minute promo to open the show. And, you know, you, you just look at this and you go, I got a bunch of people here walking around. You got probably hundred people walking around back there that are cramming for a test instead of going out, doing what you've been taught to do and entertaining the fans and making the show feel live, that something's happening right off the get go that probably shouldn't be happening. And, uh, you know, once you, once you get that show so uniform and week after week, it stays that same format and you're using the same talent in seg one, that you're using for the first crossover or the second crossover. And then that same talent's coming out and working a tag match at the end of a three hour show. And you wonder why the fans aren't reacting to them. The answer is seen them twice. It's, it's pretty simple. It's not about their ability. 
It's not about what they're doing in the ring. If I've seen you twice, I've seen it. Now, this is just another facet of what you do, but I've already seen you. And, uh, you know, they don't overexpose their talent. There's a big difference in a two-hour show and a three-hour show. And if you've seen a one-hour show lately, Conrad, you'll know this. If you cough, boom, it's over. So it moves quickly. Um, and, and they're just totally two different animals. One one company, AEW, is going to let these kids make some mistakes and fall on their butt, and then they're going to fix it and move on. In a world of WWE, when you have all those sponsorships and you got Fox breathing down your neck and USA Network breathing down your neck, everybody's scared to death to make a mistake, and it makes for a very tense atmosphere. That's the two differences that I see. Okay, Arn, let's run a timeout right now to tell everybody how they can make this the best Christmas ever. If you haven't already, go to SaveWithConrad.com right now. What are you waiting for? Yes, it's true. This is the most wonderful time of year, but for a lot of moms and dads, it's also the most stressful. Here's a pro tip for you. Don't put Christmas on a credit card. You'll get stuck making minimum payments and way overpay. The average interest rate on a credit card now in America is like over 20%. Meanwhile, I can help you get a rate in the threes or fours and skip your next two house payments. But maybe best of all, we'll help you get rid of all your credit card debt just like that. And you heard me right, by the way. If you haven't already made your December payment, you won't make that or January. You're done until February 1st. Or maybe you'd like to skip your January and your February house payment. You wouldn't have a payment due until March. So don't delay. Cruise over to SaveWithConrad.com today. Find out how much money you can save for free. We're going to take your 30-year loan. We're going to pay it off faster. And oh, by the way, we're doing it with cheaper monthly payments. We routinely help our listeners save tens of thousands of dollars, and you don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket to do this. Even credit scores in the 500s will qualify. And how about this? If we can't save you money, we won't waste your time. It's also worth mentioning we're licensed in more than 40 states. We can probably hook you up too. Check it out right now. You'll be glad you did. It's SaveWithConrad.com. That's SaveWithConrad.com. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lender. Let's uh, let's pivot to a, a funny topic. Uh, Robbie Coleman posted a pretty famous picture that circulated of you and Tully Blanchard and J.J. Dillon and Ric Flair. And it looks like you're standing in front of Rick's old house because Megan has told me that's her four-wheeler in the background. And you've got the, uh, the TV title and a Panama Jack hat and some very I small. Know. Yeah, I got it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, some, you, some little gold workout shorts. Can you, right? can you explain to us, uh, what's going on in this photo? What's happening here? Well, since I got up that morning and was just going for a workout and that was all, uh, this was not a photo op. This was not something that we thought was going to go anywhere. I don't even know who took the picture, to be honest with you. Maybe you have the inside skippy on that. I don't. But this was meant to be just buddies, you know, and, and you know, I had the title and the belt, you know, and, and, my, and the car and all that stuff. This was just us, a bunch of buddies taking a picture of me, you know, to get togetherness, as it were. Um but, uh, yeah, it was pretty disgusting. <laughs> I'm yeah. not photogenic anyway. And that, that just really capped it off. Uh, Steven Stokes writes in, when you won the TV title from the great Muda was a longer program ever discussed or was Muda just on the way out and you winning the championship was a way to take the belt off of him. Well, I'm not sure the circumstances if he was on the way out, but I, I think when they told him. They wanted him to drop the TV title. He decided he was going to be on the way out. Um, I enjoyed working with Muto. Um, it was difficult in one facet that I I didn't feel like he wanted to do the honors. And I didn't feel like he wanted to work as hard as he possibly could because he was a very talented guy. It was like working with Ricky Steamboat. He was so smooth. Um I worked with him in Japan. 
and some, you know, some six man tags. And it was funny. I was talking to Ron Simmons at Starcast last, um, and Muda was on the stage and he, you know, he was talking and I reminded Ron, I said, you remember back to where Austin, you and me working in six mans with those guys, Hase, him and another one of the, the Japanese boys. And we said, okay, now Muda, we want to feed you a hell of a comeback here on this deal. And we're all going to feed in, you know, and da, 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 we want you to do this and this and this. Oh, no, no, not too much, not too much. Why? No, 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 too much. The guy didn't want to make a comeback. He's a little bit lazy in that respect. Um, But other than that, I mean, the guy, and maybe it was, I don't know what it was. But anyway, very talented, a big star. That's all I got to say about that. Do you think um, Gary Hart hurt him in the NWA? Behind the scenes. Yeah, I think maybe, you know, it, it's possible. I mean, I, I didn't know Gary. I didn't know, you know, I, let's put it to you this way. I was never privy to see a conversation between the two that I could hear. I saw a few, but I didn't hear a few. Um, I guess what I'm was, asking but, is, I think for better or worse, in certain circles, uh, Gary had a particular reputation. And I just wonder if maybe Gary rubbed people the wrong way. And as a result, any sort of potential there was for a great mood they felt like, well, we don't need to roll the dice and maybe give this guy a little more. Now I've never met Gary. I don't know anything about what I'm talking about. I just know I've heard a few old timers say, well, you know, Gary Hart probably heard him in that deal. And, and, and I just wanted your perspective on if you think that's true and B, could you expand on what that maybe means? Well, you know, you got to remember this. You got to go back, and this is being fair. I'm trying to be fair. You go back to a time where if you got beat on TV too much, it hurt you. Right. It, it did hurt you. But when you're in a top, top match with a top guy and something at stake, you know, it's very easy to make everybody win if both guys are on, on you know, board. And I feel like that's what happened with that match. Um, you know, I don't know Gary either. I haven't spent any time with him. I just, you know, I go back to Slater and Orton. He was managing them at the time. So I was digging that whole package, but I was just a fan. I was just just a late teenager and just going, man, I'm, I'm digging all of this. But when I had to deal with him on my own, I mean, I never dealt with him. It was just like, you know, see conversations that were sidebars off to the side. So I don't have that information either. Wish I did. You know, we're going to be talking about the, uh, early next year, we're going to cover the, uh, the television title. That'll be the whole topic of the show. And I made it that way because I realized when I was doing research on you the other day, you've had four runs with the TV title and all four runs are in the first week of the month of January. That's where I became the champion. You, you, you won the belt on January 4th, 1986 in Greensboro, North Carolina for title run. Number one, you won it for title run. Number two on January 2nd in Gainesville, Georgia. You won it in, uh, title number three, January 7th, 1991 in Perry, Georgia and title run. Number four, January 8th, 1995, Atlanta, Georgia. So once in North Carolina, three times in Georgia, but all between January 2nd and January 8th. How crazy is that? Two things come to mind. January was a very good month for me. <laughs> and quite, quite possibly my opponents could have been hung over from New Year's Eve. And I took advantage of that. Either way works for me. It's just fascinating to me when you when you sit back and you look at that because I don't think anybody who was booking it thought, well, goddamn, it's the first week of January. Orange's got to win the belt. It's just one of those things where you wake up and you say, holy shit, the Undertaker's ten and zero at WrestleMania. We need to keep this going. It just sort of happens that way. Yeah, you know, I did. I I would have never known that in a thousand years. That's uh, that's. It's a little creepy. It is a little creepy. Actually, I mean, within actually, a six-day right? period, every time 
four times. It's crazy. Uh, Beverly Johnson writes a great question in who came up with the idea for breaking dusty's arm. And by the way, uh, the, the symbolism is not lost on us old time fans that in AEW, the inner circle attacked Dustin Rhodes and threw him into a car and broke his arm. It's just the parallels are just so fun for an old school fan, but who came up with the original idea? Who came up with the idea to break Dusty's arm? That would have been Dusty's and something to clarify here. I think, which I think got lost in translation was, did you see the cowboy movie Shane? Yes. Isn't there a spot in there where he's getting something and getting beat up or something is happening or they're going to smash his hand with a butt of a rifle or something and he looks right at the guy and goes, you better make it good or make it good or something? Is yeah. that in there? I don't know if it's in that movie, but I do know for sure that I, I get the reference and, and I think I know where you're heading. The idea being that a lot of smart fans – when Dusty yelled to the horseman, make it good, assume that he is out of his wrestling character and he is more wearing his director's hat saying to make the action good. But in reality, this is a cowboy saying, Hey, if you're going to fuck me up, you better do it right. Cause I'm coming back. hundred percent. And I think, you know, it took a little bit away from it for people that were perceiving it to be Oh God, he said that too loud and we overheard him and that wasn't supposed to be, you know what I mean? Versus it was a scene from a cowboy movie and those that got it, got it, but it all played into the, yeah, you're going to do that. You better make it good. I think I, I just wanted to clear that up. That's the way it was intended, but it was God, just like the, the time we broke his leg, it was red hot. I mean, good Lord. Um, great question here from, uh, Ron, this is a fun topic that fans love to hear about. Were you ever ribbed by Mr. Fuji? If so, I'd love to hear about it. Fuji is a notorious ribber. You were there for a little while when he was there. You ever get ribbed by Fuji? I never got ribbed by him, but I heard the stories and they were pretty, pretty horrifying. I did see him rib one of the boys and I can't remember. I can't remember who it was, but we were in the hotel bar. We had just gotten there, and I was drinking with Barry Darso because I hadn't seen him in a long, long time. And we're sitting in the bar, just a hotel bar, and it's like one of the guys was bellied up to the bar and facing towards the bar. And Barry leaned in and said, don't call any attention, but look at Mr. Fuji and I just kind of let my eyes trickle around and found him and he was pissing all over the back of the guy's pants. So I looked at Barry and went, Oh my God. I mean, <laughs> number one, that's an arrestable sure. situation. You get arrested for shit like that. Besides the sanitary part of it. I mean, there's some sanitation issues there. And, uh, Barry just said, the guy's got heat. I went, oh, okay. Well, that makes it makes it okay. But that was one of the ones that were that's pretty heavy rib. Um, Michael P.S. Hayes, for better or worse, is famous for pissing on people. Did Aaron Anderson ever pee on anybody? No. <laughs> what about Michael that, Hayes? You got any good Michael Hayes peeing stories? <laughs> well, that's what that's what toilets are for, for God's sakes. My God, man, you can't just pee on somebody. Um, <laughs> um yeah, I, I, I want to say there was a story of, of him peeing on Harley, for God's sakes. Really? Yeah. I, I, you'd have to ask Michael to be sure, but I, they all three might have been in there or something, and the other two got his attention or something like that. Now I may be making this up, but I think there was one of those. Cause when I heard it, I went, Oh, they're lucky. Harley didn't kill all of them. My goodness. Uh, I got to ask him that as we're, as you and I are taping, it's a, it's a TV day, but I'm going to call him and, and see if I can get to the bottom of this free bird, Harley race PP story. Wow. 
don't don't hold me to that because I have a lot of weird nightmares too over the years and 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 those start to blend into reality. So, but I think that would be, and if that that is true, that would be one of the more prominent ones. I would say, wouldn't you? Uh, yeah, I would think that's probably the biggest. Uh, Rich Carswell writes in: Does Arn have any memories of working in ECW, and how did it come about? We've uh, briefly touched on the fact that you were there and revealed as, as the big partner, but we didn't really talk about how you enjoyed working in front of those fans or with that locker room or with Paul Lee during the ECW era. Well, yeah, it was, I think it was after there was a gap when Bobby Eaton and I finished up with, uh, Bill Watts pretty much sent us home. I uh, did the angle with Eric and I think this is the right time frame. Uh, but we, we both had still had time on our contracts and stuff. He just said, you guys have been here too long. You know, I need to get you out of here a while. Da, 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 da. I came up with the angle with the parking lot with Eric and, and all that stuff. And we were not doing anything. And I want to say they booked us out over there for just one shot. Wasn't it? Yeah, I think so. I think you just had one match there. I think it was. And it was like uh, myself and Terry Funk against Bobby Eaton and um, Sabu. Now you're talking about a, a bastard tag team. Uh, so we get there and, you know, we walk in. Of course, it's a whole different environment. And, and, uh, Sabu spent a, a large part of the afternoon telling me, you know, all these different ways he was going to fall out of the ceiling on top of me <laughs> and such. <laughs> so I just agreed. I said, yeah, that, you know, that, that sounds good. <laughs> um, and Bobby was just kind of walking around. I don't think... T- Terry had the same conversation with Bobby, but Bobby's walking around gnawing his nails and eating candy and doing what he did. Um, so there was a master plan with Terry and Sabu, and we were the WCW guys coming over off of TV, and they kind of wanted to uh, sabotage us a little bit, so they started. They fought all over the building. Bobby and I are standing there on the apron. They both rolled back in the ring, both bleeding, and walked over and tagged us in. So we stepped through the ropes. I figured out what was going on there. Bobby went, whoa, what are we going to do? do?" Tell you what we're going to do. Grab a headlock. He grabbed a headlock and took me over, and we laid there about five minutes. So there was a FU back, and we worked our way up finally and uh, did a little high spot and went on and got through the match. So I don't know who came out better on that deal. I wasn't bleeding, and I wasn't beat up, and nobody fell out of the ceiling on me. So it was a good day. Man, that's a great story. And and I'm hoping we can follow it up with another great story here. You and I have never talked about this, but it became very famous when it was written in a book a few years ago and people have started to whisper about it, but now we get to ask the man himself about it. Dustin King writes in, I recently heard a story where you slapped disco inferno. What happened? Yeah. Yeah, I did. And that was possibly the wrong thing to do being the job that I had, but that aside, man to man, absolutely not. It was the right thing to do. So we had worked some shows and we had a private plane and we were flying back to Florida. We landed, I want to say in Orlando And it was one of those things that we didn't get in to early in the morning. So I see that that Disco is just in one of those goofy moods, and he's riding Hugh Morris. 
yeah, your daughters like like me more than they do you, Hugh. You know, they're fans of me more than they are you. And I see Hugh, who was about 3.30 at the time, was really getting pissed. Now, this is a baggage claim. It starts. So we get our bags. We go get on the rent-a-car bus. Now it's smaller area, close proximity. He starts again. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm a much bigger star than you are. Now he's goofing on him. But uh, I could see it ain't getting over. Now he's getting red in the face. And I just looked, leaned in and looked at him. I said, cut the bullshit out. You know, we're all tired as fuck. We're not going to get any sleep. We're going to sleep a few hours, grab a gym, and we got to drive to Jacksonville. Oh, what are you going to do? Beat me up horseman style was his reaction. So I slapped the shit out of him and said, no, that's Marty Lundy style, motherfucker. And so I cupped him pretty good, and uh, he got a blank look on his face, and uh, that's the real story. And he, behind, shut the, he shut up. And behind the scenes, you know, it's uh, it's protocol. If you're the younger guy and the veteran says to do something, you fall in line and do it. Well, you know, you can't slap a guy if you're the agent in charge of the guys, but he just wouldn't let up. And I knew, hey, I might have saved his life. You could ask you, you Morris, but he was, you know, Bill DeMott. He was absolutely boiling, and he was he was probably fixed to kill the guy. And it wasn't so much the content, you know. He was just goofing on him, but he just wouldn't let up. And everybody was beat. Nobody had slept. We weren't facing enough time to sleep. And that's always, you know, part of the dread is knowing I got three hours to sleep. And if I want to get up, I got to get up and train then because I still got a pretty hefty drive. Those are all things that are facing you when all this shit was going on. Let me ask when you, um, when you had this incident with disco, is there any blowback from the office? Never heard a word. Well, at least nope. they didn't stooge it off. Then. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, uh, you know, he was man enough, I guess, to not run to the office. It would have probably cost me my job. Uh, David Gordon writes, what did you think of Randy Savage? He's my personal all-time favorite. And, uh, one of my favorite matches is when you guys wrestled to a 15 minute time limit draw on an episode of Saturday night. Yeah, I, I got along good with Savage. I mean, he was a different cat course, you know, he, he did his own thing, but he was all business all the time. And you always knew, you know, if you're going to be working with him, he was going to do the right thing for business. And uh, I enjoyed working with Randy and he was a good worker. You know, he didn't. He did his stuff, and uh, it was over, and he looked the part, and uh, he was a star, and it was it was a good rub for me being able to work with him. John Osborne writes in, what would you say are the top three spine busters you gave to anyone? And I'm sure what he means here is just crowd reaction. WrestleMania 18's got to be near top of the list. The two others jump out. So number one is Taker. Yeah, gotta right? be, gotta be right. Oh yeah, number one, Jesus Christ. Because from a camera perspective, we had it worked out where I could get there before everybody saw me. Nobody saw me. I just kind of popped up, so it was a surprise. I had uh, run down low, running like duck running down beside the rail, and uh, everyone was looking at the ring. Obviously, nobody saw me till I got ringside. Uh, the next one would probably be Shawn Michaels, which got a one, two, three and a survivor series. So I eliminated Shawn with that and just the magnitude of who he was. And I got to put the one with Vader in there. You know, Vader's a big dude. He was close to 400 pounds. That's one of those that you think couldn't be done, but Leon was an athlete and uh, a damn good one. If you play pro football in the NFL, Jesus Christ, you're something special. 
and he he went right up with me. Everything was fine, and uh, if I say so myself, that was pretty damn impressive. Matt writes in, do you have any Pat Rose stories? You may remember from some of our earlier episodes, Arn mentioned being, uh, being a traveling mate, a running guy, a running mate, a pal around guy with Pat Rose back in the early days of his professional wrestling career, largely a territory guy, but you would see him uh, pop up as an enhancement talent here or there on TV. And these days he's got a big uh, fishing show on ESPN in Chattanooga. Uh, what about Pat Rose? Any interesting Pat Rose stories? Well, yeah, Pat and I were roommates for a while when he, uh, came down to Pensacola. We lived in Scott Armstrong's, uh, condo and we were, we were traveling mates and, uh, drinking mates and going to the beach mates and, and all that good stuff that came with working in Pensacola. It was heaven on earth. Um, probably the most notable you may find this amusing. You may not. I had torn my groin and uh, pretty badly, and I was still trying to work through it because in those days you just did not miss work. And when you're in a small territory and you're in a feature position, you know there was no one to replace you. If people came to see you. They came to see you. There was no, you know, there wasn't like you could go pluck another guy that had a lot of TV experience or TV time or, you know from out of the woodwork. So I had gotten torn my growing water skin and, um, I rode down to the arena with Pat and I was actually having to walk with a cane to get down the steps. Once I got down the steps from the condo, got in the car, I was okay to get out of the car and walk in the building. You don't want to go in the building on a cane because I was trying to mask the fact that I was hurt. Uh, so I left my cane in the car and I had my favorite pair of beat around. I called them my high shoes. They were actually a pair of house shoes with no heel on them. So we'd be in the, we'd be in the house drinking and, and, and all of our stuff. And when I get ready to sit down, I just sit down and flop them off. Thus they became my high shoes, my favorite beat around shoes of, of all time. So we go in, we work the show, we come back out. Pat's car has been repoed with my high shoes oh, no. and my cane. That may not sound funny, but I needed them to get up the stairs, and that was my favorite shoes. And the kicker to it all was <laughs> Pat's car payment was $99 a month. <laughs> How do you get your car repoed when it's $99 a month? Probably not smart financing or not financing, but probably not not smart acquisition of your funds or not paying your bills. Let's yeah. just put it to you that way. Anybody can make a $99 a month payment. So his car was gone. That was it. So were my shoes. So was my cane. That's my Pat Rose story. My goodness. Uh, Kellerman of wrestling writes in an interesting question. He says survivor series just had multiple triple threat matches on the surface. This type of match seems like a real challenge in terms of producing and making them different. How would agents work together in a situation like that? And how big of a challenge is this compared to a normal show? Big challenge. One of the aspects of a triple threat is you can't have three people fighting each other at the same time. One guy has to be selling pretty much at all times. If you're that guy and you're laying down there and it gets long-winded with the two guys working the match and you're laying down there two minutes, three minutes, and the fans start hollering, Jesus Christ, get up, you pussy. That's a little bit, you know, heartbreaking to be in that situation. Um, it's just difficult mechanically because there are no count outs. Technically, it's an ODQ, but you don't want to go that way and start hitting each other with chairs. So technically you could, but you don't. And uh, 
if there's more than one, I mean, it, it, the same formula will never change. Only two people can fight at a time. You can't have three people fighting. So one guy's got to be down at all times. And it, it just seems like the same match, no matter what you do. Uh, Bo Brennanman has a, a more recent question. He says, when did you know your time with WWE was coming to an end? Uh, probably for probably four years, somewhere in there before I got canned, I was getting blamed for stuff that was perceived to be my fault. That wasn't my fault. Um, my opinion was not valued, you know, Something I'm not sure that that everybody knows, and I'm sure they don't, is besides our duties on the road when you're a producer and you're traveling all those miles and going out on Friday and sometimes driving a 1,000 miles before you get to Raw, and then you got another couple 300 that night, you drive, and you got to be there early for SmackDown. On top of all that, they would send the show out sometimes on Sunday night, so after you had already put in a thousand miles, you had already did a show, you had driven to raw, however far that was, then you would get an email and you would have to critique the show. Have to read through a three hour raw, give your opinions, suggestions, same thing with SmackDown. Now it doesn't matter that it's four in the morning and you're dead tired. But that's all the producers. Very rarely in those last four years was anything that any one of us had offered because you would get a sheet with the producer suggestions and names that go by with them, that go by. And uh, uh, they never would uh, use any of those suggestions. And I knew when my opinion was no longer valued um and you would speak up it would be taken the wrong way uh it was almost like it was creative versus the producers which was the farthest thing from the truth we were doing all we could do to support their ideas a lot of them we disagreed with and would voice it and it would get kicked around the room but by the time it got back to the beginning it would just be what was written originally um, I just felt like the, you know, the last four years, it was, I always kind of felt like I was one of those UWCW guys always felt that way. Um, like an outsider. Yeah. Outsider looking in, even though in total 18 years with the company, you would think my loyalty would be unquestionable. Um, and I just felt like an outsider on the outside looking in. I never was comfortable. I never was in that. And I, I, to be honest with you, I didn't want to be in that inner circle, you know, in my head up, you know, Vince's ass or Hunter's ass or any of those guys' ass around. You know, I just, I just wanted to do my job, help the talent the best I could, take the ideas that the creative came up with, whether I agreed or not agreed with it, try to make it work the best I could. And I just, uh, you know, I was getting my head taken off for things that weren't my fault in several, several different big matches and something that, that uh, we don't have time to really discuss here because it take too long. But it just, you know, I was made to feel suddenly like I didn't know anything about the business anymore. It was like I suddenly was inept that all that knowledge I'd acquired over the years and, and all the rules and all the things that I knew applied didn't apply anymore. And, you know, you feel pretty stupid after a while, after getting hit over the head with that, Oh, that's stupid. Oh, that's stupid. Oh, that doesn't make any sense. Oh, that don't make any sense. You start to believe it. Who, uh... you got, Who's saying all oh, that doesn't make any sense? All that's stupid. Well, who could, who would have been the only guy could have got away with it? I assume Vince. Yeah, of course. 
because that, that's all that mattered. At the end of the day, it was an audience of one who we were performing for across the board, which was told to us, guys, you only have to please an audience of one. And we know who the audience of one is. So if you're not trying to give the audience what they want, if you're just trying to tiptoe around what you know he wants and requires, it's a difficult uh, minefield, really is. Well, that's uh, more meat on the bone than I expected. Let's do uh, two more here and then we'll wrap things up. Uh, Gusty O. Winflap writes in, how is being in ring shape different than just being in shape? What was his name? Dusty old wind flap. Dusty old wind flap. <laughs> oh God. I wish I was still in a position to steal that. <laughs> um, there is nothing you can do to train for being a wrestler because it's a, it's a combination of picking guys up safely, running the ropes, remembering to breathe, uh, taking bumps and getting the wind knocked out of you. Uh, there's so many things that go on in a match. There's short spurts of wide open, and then you're back to neutral and you're working a hold and you're thinking, having to think you're having to think ahead and, uh, put your partner in a position that you won't want him in and not speaking in the ring is the goal. And if it is, it's a word or two and that's all it is. There's just so many things. You're, you're part actor, you're part athlete, you're part ventriloquist, you're having to think ahead and and lay stuff out and make sure that you're keeping up with the time with the referee communicating with him. There's so many things going on. Being in ring shape, you just there's just no way to train for it. The best thing we've come up with, and it was way, way a long time ago, 50 years probably ago, was Hindu squats because most matches you're getting up and down, up and down, up and down. And that's the one thing you can do cardio-wise, free squats, um, step-ups that will get you in a little bit of ring shape. But the only way to get in ring shape, simple answer. You got to wrestle, and you got to wrestle a long time and a lot of nights in the row. If you go four minutes and then you go two minutes the next night and then you're off five days, it's real hard to get in ring shape for when you do have to pull out one of those 20 minutes or 25 minutes, which you don't have those much anymore anyway. But uh, the only way to get in ring shape for wrestling is to wrestle. Last one. Do you have any crazy Vince McMahon stories? You just told us how he thought maybe you were crazy, but we've often heard that you're not allowed to sneeze. And I think Brian Gerwitz once said that Cats have no integrity and giraffes are pussies. These are all Vince McMahonisms. Do you have any interesting Vince McMahon stories you can share with us? One funny one. No. Well, all right, ladies and gentlemen, that's going to bring this week's hashtag ask Arn anything episode to a conclusion. If you'd like to participate in next week's episode, It'll be two weeks from today, and you can ask your question real easy. Just find us on Twitter at the Arn Show, and be sure to use hashtag AskArnAnything, and we may ask your question here on the show. Now, what's coming up for us next week? And you know, so far this year, we've done a lot of the big ones. Arn's first WWE pay per view, Arn's first Starcade is next. I can't wait for this one. Starcade 1985. We'll talk about what has happened on his way to this big pay-per-view since he's just recently joined Jim Crockett promotions. We'll also talk about the match that night and uh, we'll run down the entire card from that show. Then we'll be back at you with another hashtag ask Arn anything the day before Christmas. We'll talk about coming back to WCW while he left the WWF in December of 89. 
We'll also include Starcade 89, which is his first pay-per-view back. So stay tuned, stick around, and be sure to follow us on Twitter. And don't forget, the best stocking stuffer you can give the wrestling fan in your life is a t-shirt from arnshirts.com. That's A-R-N-S-H-I-R-T-S.com. Until next week, he's at the Arn Show. I'm at Hey Hey, it's Conrad, and we are out of time. We'll see you next Tuesday and every Tuesday right here on Westwood One for Arn. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.